from the twisted realm of science and the darkest pits of reason comes chilling tales of godlessness. Bear witness to the unfathomable terror that is the good Welcome to the Good Atheist Podcast. My name is Jacob Fortan. I'm T-Bot. Wait, did I say Fortan again? I am always getting it wrong. It's Jacob Fourteen. Well, I can, but I always forget that my name is now a number. Thirteen. Jacob Fourteen. We agreed. Yes. Welcome to the Good Atheist. My name is Jacob Fourteen. Said it properly again. T-Bot. And today... The O is actually a zero. Yeah. T-Bot. It's a... both have numbers in our name. Yeah, that O with the line here. He's not even a human being. He's uh, he's a bunch of series of uh, letters and a an, and, uh, number. I'm just a podcast bot. show <laughs> up on shows and stir the pot a little bit. Truthfully, he's actually me with a bit of a vocoder <laughs> thing. I'm, I'm just, I've gone schizo. <laughs> he's not a real human being. He's just another part of my personality. Well, hello there. <laughs> so what do we have on the, sh- wh- what's the plan today for the show, Mr. Split Personality? <laughs> well, golly, uh, me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think, uh, actually, I think we have a pretty good interview coming up, right? Well, I interviewed this guy called Matt Fasciani, who is what I think is going to be maybe our Bill Nye the Science Guy um, in the atheism community, if you want. And I, I talked to him recently. I'd, he'd, I'd followed him re- uh, on Twitter, and I just I guess I kind of liked what he was saying, so I thought, let's have him on the show. And pr- during the show, I kind of, you know, fell in love with him, as I'm sure the listeners will, so I think it's going to be a great interview. And after that, we're also going to have a God Talk segment, so we've got a full show. Oh, God's joining us. Yeah, God's joining us. He has some thoughts after, you know, all the stuff that ISIS has been doing. If you you haven't been paying attention to the news, they've been smashing some idols. Smashy, smashy. It's in the book. You know, they are following their book. And, of course, driving us mad... And uh, it's quite infuriating that they're destroying the treasures of the world. But we're, we're going to hear God's thoughts on that. But uh, let's first go to the interview. I want to j- jump right into it because we have a special surprise that I'm not even going to tell you about after that interview. So let's get into our part one of the show, which is our interview with Matt Fasciani, after these messages. Thanks for joining us, God. Our first question is, how does it feel to have ISIS try to build a country for you? For me? Is it really for me? I don't actually know if anybody knows how to build a country for God, by the way. When you're trying to build a country for God, you have to be really choosy about how you do it. Number one, you have to follow every single rule that I have, and some of them conflict with one another, so figuring it out is up to you. If you get it wrong, by the way, wipe you out. That's the whole thing. Wipe you out periodically if you get it wrong. How is ISIS doing, relatively speaking? Well, the problem is everybody always breaks. Every, but not there are some people that break more commandments than others. I will say they're probably on the list of breaking the fewest commandments, only because they're actually fulfilling the most important ones, which is the destruction of idols. So I don't see a lot of other people destroying idols. They're allowing other things like Festivus poles and uh, atheist banners, and all kinds of other idolatry all over the place. They haven't destroyed it. And, and more importantly, they have museums where they preserve these things and show them to other people. This 
is intolerable. At least ISIS smashes it. Do you know how many times it says, smash these idols? They're doing it right, and they're doing it right around the areas where there have been hotbeds of idols for thousands of years, those Ball and Ashraf poles that I keep saying specifically piss me off. Well, they're smashing them one by one over there, doing a real goddamn good job. So you're in favor of the cleansing? Well, if you've understood my book, you know that every once in a while I let armies of the not right kind of believers just come come through like a swarm of locusts. Just clear the whole area out because I want to start fresh. And there's no better way to do that than with a bunch of fucking religious radicals that I fire up and give the fucking power of God to once in a while. I like to play like that. Does that mean you're supporting ISIS? Are they part of the plan? Well, they don't... They have their plan, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's a stupid plan. And I'm fine with them having their own little plan that they think is gonna, you know, lead to some glorious caliphate. What a joke. But... More importantly, I have a plan, and my plan is first to smash a few idols, to cause a lot of war and misery, and just generally to make the world a lot more interesting, because frankly, I'm a little bored of all this peace bullshit happening. Like, let's step it up, huh? Let's step things up. Let's make things interesting again. Are there any passages from your first book that might give us clues as to what you're planning? Well, you could, if you're reading the beginning of the Old Testament, you could see their actions as just... Hey, you could take him out if you had a little bit more confidence in me, but, uh, hey, sometimes you doubt, and then I punish you. So maybe that's why you got some earthquakes or things aren't going your way. Maybe, I, maybe I'm putting Isis there as a big task for you to nuke him or something. I don't know. It's really up to you to interpret it. There's tons of ways. But one way you could interpret it, if it was the end of the Old Testament, you could see it as just basically my, my way of punishing you for not following the rules for worshipping wrong, for worshipping other deities, for including yourself in secular society and obeying their laws, and for probably eating a bacon cheeseburger. That is... I mean, it ranks up there in terms of things that piss me off. Is Isis breaking any rules, or is this all part of your plan? It's just part of my plan. I just like to rile up every once in a while a whole bunch of crazy bastards with an unusually high amount of weapons and other destructive capabilities and just unleash them on people that uh, I don't particularly like at the time. So if you happen to be in the way, let, just take comfort in knowing that whatever things you're suffering on Earth and how horrible they might be, it's going to get worse when you go to hell. What will the history books say of ISIS and will you write a third testament for them? I'd be surprised if many of them know how to read or write. But for the most part, it's completely inconsequential. I've, my designs for how they end up is so gruesome that I really don't even want to tell you. It's so awesome they're going to make movies about this for a long time. So uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Ah, now you're trying to get into the mysterious ways of God. For that, I have a special place in hell for you now. So now, now you know the future. You want to keep knowing the future, wise guy? Why is humanity perpetually stuck in this cycle of violence and destruction? How come we can't get it right? Well, I, I kind of made uh, parts of you that were just going to fuck up, you know. Because if you make a perfect being, you just don't need to do anything ever again. Like, have you ever had one of those uh, cast iron pans? 
Yeah, the company that makes them, they went out of business because they made an invincible product. That was stupid. Yeah, if you make something that's broken, you always need to fix it. So if I made you perfect, you wouldn't need me. But because you're all fucking busted up, hey, who, who do you need all the way, always to come over and save the damn day? Me. Yeah, that's right. That's why I made you broken. What's a good example of how you're constantly testing humanity? I think that a good uh, test of character for someone is to put them in, in just strife and to randomly make bad things happen to good people. Because there's nothing more confusing than when you, your whole life you've been nothing but the best person, and then you just randomly get mugged and killed. And that's kind of hilarious to me. And you're all like, why did that happen? And I'm just like, punked. That's how it is. That's how it is. Why do you step on ants? I don't know. Sometimes you just want to fucking punk an ant. So when is it okay to kill people? It's almost always okay to kill other people. You have to really understand that even though there's a commandment to say, don't kill, that's don't kill whoever's in your really specific little group that you only know when you're in it. You know what I mean? So don't kill each other in your little tribe. But outside of that, I mean, if you kill your slave and you had a pretty good reason, it's all good. You know what I mean? They're a slave. Well, first of all, yeah, you're not gonna. You might pay a fine if you did it wrong. Like you know, if you were beating them and they died accidentally, okay, you might pay a big fine or something, a few shekels, fifty shekels or something. I don't remember the, the amount. You should remember though, because if you break that rule, I'll fucking kill you. But anyways, yeah, I mean, killing's not that bad. You keep you keep being such little pussies these days. Oh, killing, blah blah, killing's wrong. You're a joke. You know what's wrong? Worshiping idols. End of list. What's the most malleable of all the commandments? I think the biggest one is don't, the don't steal one. Again, that applies only to your own group. But do you know how many times when the Jews were visiting the promised land that I'd give them just to scope things out? They're just grabbing anything they wanted, you know, some vines growing, some, you know, pick what you want. If it's from somebody who's not in your team, it's not technically stealing. No, it's appropriating. That's what you got to realize. So. All of the commandments, that's just for one group. Everybody outside the command, that's outside the commandments, fuck them, fuck them. Last question, Todd. Is it okay for people to join ISIS? Really, really doesn't matter. Uh, you're all insignificant. So, as long as there are people who are suffering and dying, I'm happy. So, choose one side or the other. I've already made up my mind about who gets to go into heaven and who doesn't. So, go nuts. Well, good luck with all your future endeavors, God. Oh, wishing me luck. That's, uh, that's blasphemy. That's witchcraft. Welcome to the Good Atheist Podcast. My name is Jacob14. Today I have a very special guest. He's, uh, he's new to our scene, if you want, because it's not primarily his, it, let's just say, his area of interest. <laughs> But it turns out that what he studies has coincides with the things that we are obsessed about, and so it's my pleasure to have Mr. Matt Fasciani on our uh, on my show. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Now you uh, you're a PhD candidate in cognitive neuroscience at the University of South Carolina. So basically, you're going through hell right now. Is that correct? <laughs> 
Yes, that is correct. I have a few friends who are PhD candidates, and they, uh, you know, they rigorously need our help in terms of psychological maintenance because it, it, it's its own thing of in terms of terror and psychological damage. <laughs> trying to um, trying to impress your fellows is tough. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's rough, but you know, enjoying the topic I study and you know making good progress. So hope that I can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. So. Let me let me ask you this question: What made you want to go into this field of study? Like, because I mean, if you're if you're in your fourth year as a PhD candidate, when did you start studying this topic? Oh sure. So I mean, my story is um, perhaps a little bit different than than most because I started out as an undergrad with a real strong focus on clinical psychology. I really thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist and a therapist. No, you wanted to, you wanted to basically, you know, fix people's heads. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I did, yeah. Um, I did for a while, and then I started getting a little bit more involved in neuroscience. I had a couple internships. I worked at a hospital um, seeing brain injury patients, and that was kind of my clinical and neuroscience uh, kind of combined experience. Um, so you got then, you got seduced by a bit of the science part <laughs> of it, is what you're saying. You, was psychology a bit soft? For you and the neuroscience is like I got hard data. You come to me. <laughs> yeah, it was it was intriguing to to put the the hard science with the the behavior in the mind. I think that's really what started to attract me at first. I mean, I still definitely think psychology is a science, and I'll defend that till the day I die. But it is nice to have something tangible that you can study as well. Well, but this is the problem that I've I had a few arguments the other day about the definitions of science because I think there's some people who are confused and think that there is really a strong definition of what exactly is a science <laughs> or what science is and I think the thing that always sure. surprises people is that no there isn't there's not really a lot of uh, agreement let's say we just it's an intuitive feeling that scientists have and you'd like say what <laughs> yeah no that's a good point I mean how do you even define science that's the first thing you have to say I think there's a lot of confusion about what science is, what it actually does, and just all the factors involved with the institution of science that just kind of get ignored whenever it's uh, mentioned in the popular media. Well, it's just because it's a huge story, and already the media has a problem with the word theory, so we're like, you know what, you don't right. get to know any of the <laughs> other inner workings. When you get that one right, then we'll let you play with the big boys. That's how I feel. <laughs> no, that, that sounds good. Now let me ask you this. So you 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 did this. You, you were basically mo morphing, if you want, into the cognitive science, and, and you were looking at the, the 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 psychology of it. And all of a sudden, this turns over to the study of religion. I mean, like this is a third little element here that's gets that's getting involved here. Where does this come from? Sure. So when I started graduate school, I was still kind of finding out exactly what I wanted to study. I knew I wanted to do neuroscience and something and how we can see. Um, kind of going back to the, something tangible for behavior, but it, it's kind of funny because I didn't start out studying the, the psychology and neuroscience of religion. Um, I actually gave a, a talk for my local Secular Student Alliance group just for fun. I thought, you know, I read a little bit about this area. Maybe I can give a presentation for my group on you know, your brain on religion, and. After I was reading about it even more to prepare for the presentation, I started to get really excited about it, and it kind of slowly grew into something that was more of a hobby. And I would give, start to give talks to um, other secular student groups uh, around, like around the local area, and 
over time, in the past year or so, uh, um, it's become my research area. I kind of switched areas to really focus on this for my dissertation topic. And it's nice because I can continue to do the science communication and give talks about it as well. So this is, a, this is basically a story of a slow seduction <laughs> of a young man into the world <laughs> of science and atheism. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay, all right, I like it. I mean, it's not, you know, the scarlet letter style of hot, you know, seduction, but it nevertheless seems to just kind of like lead <laughs> to certain pathways, I suppose. And I, I, I think that, that a lot of people in the quote-unquote atheism scene I think find themselves kind of like at that crossroad, right? When you examine belief or ideas, and you, you can come to certain conclusions, and everybody's like, "Oh, hey, welcome to the party!" Oh, you stop believing because you saw what the brain does as soon as you stimulate certain parts with a magnet. Yeah, they start they start hearing voices and be like, "Oh, well, that's explainable." Then I guess that explains every religious book you've ever read in your life. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was definitely uh, a lot of self-reflection that goes into it. I mean, I didn't even really mention my my deconversion story. This was ooh, let's hear one. that one. What, <laughs> you were you were religious? How religious were you? I was very religious. Oh, brother! Like, talk about seduction! Wow, this is getting hotter. Like, what faith? <laughs> I was Catholic. Oh, poor, poor you. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I mean, seriously, it's it's tough, I mean, to kind of get over that, the guilt and the shame you feel from the the, the lessons you're taught growing up, it's just, it's a, it takes a while to get over that kind of stuff, but... I don't think you really ever do, actually, because I will tell you that most people who have gotten out of the Catholic faith still are people who can easily be shamed and guilted, and all, I mean, you've been psychologically conditioned for that, I mean, you can't brush that shit away, you must know this. <laughs> Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of variability. Uh, if you want to say an absolute getting rid of it completely, maybe you won't ever completely get rid of it. But um, I think you can make a, a definite categorical shift for feeling better about yourself. Oh, absolutely. I just mean that, you know, like the tricky areas of your brain you can't always control, like let's say in the dream world or those kinds of things. Who knows? Your brain would like to fuck with you. And your brain has <laughs> sure. been fucked with for quite some time. So how long was your brain basically messed up with the, the, the eschatology of Catholicism? Gosh, you know, I was, so I was very religious uh, up until the beginning of college. I even briefly considered priesthood. Get your, um, get out of here. Get, it's actually, wow. no, um, so the, the two, the two career paths I was actually thinking about as like a junior or senior high school student was either a priest or a Republican congressman. Wow. I, get, I mean, did you watch The West Wing? Were you born 50 years old? What the hell, man? <laughs> yeah, I guess I was. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's really bizarre to think about how, how foreign that feels now. But, yeah, it's true. I mean, those, those are the kind of the environment I was surrounded with growing up. And um, once I got to college and got exposed to new ideas, it was, it was pretty quick. I mean... I'm not sure when I would, there was no like defining moment on when I would uh, declare myself an atheist, but after my freshman year, I was very skeptical about religion and pretty much in that wishy-washy, um, agnostic, what do I kind of believe phase after even a year. Well, did it also help that maybe you were in college and there were some hot girls and you're thinking this whole celibacy <laughs> thing may be a little unrealistic? <laughs> maybe just a little. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things. I mean, that's definitely part of it. Um, yeah, I definitely had an issue with premarital sex, as uh, you know most Catholics do, and 
I think it's just once you kind of get exposed to different ideas, you kind of realize that we are all just trying to figure it out and no one really has all the answers. And to be really closed minded is just the, one of the worst things you can do. Does there, is there kind of, because, I mean, you said you're very religious and that obviously that there wasn't this one incident, but was there a kind of sort of event where all of a sudden it hurt or it stung a little bit more than, you know, you would have liked and that, that opened the door because I do know that there are some people when I talk to, it was like, for instance, in a talk where a priest said, hey, God is on our side. And all of a sudden this person's like, say what? <laughs> you know, was there anything shocking that you started to really understand what the meaning of it at was as you became more adult? Like what was, what was the part that really annoyed or shocked you as a Catholic the most? Gosh, well, probably, again, a bunch of things. Um, when I took, I took a philosophy course my second semester, and we did talk about religion. It was really the first time I had a professor or some sort of authority figure tell me that, you know, there's no evidence for God. And we talked about what that means, to have evidence and all that stuff. That was one thing that started to get me thinking a lot more about it. But another thing that always, always hits me is just when you think about how much suffering there is in the world, and if there's this, you know, omnipotent being, how does that being allow for all this to occur? And that just always really bothers me. So once I kind of broke down the, the logical problems with it, I could kind of then go back and forth with all the emotional issues I had with believing in some God that um, allows for so much problems in our world. Did you want to become a priest because you have this natural sort of, um, I, I guess, how would I describe it, a, a, a need to serve or something like that. You know, I feel like this part of you that's like, I want to make the world better. <laughs> sure, definitely. Um, and yeah, that's really the way I thought I could do it. And now, I mean, I, that part of me still still exists. You know, I want to be a, a teacher and a science communicator now. So it's still the kind of the same basic personality characteristics, but in hopefully a uh, much more productive way. I thought one of the interesting things that you mentioned, this is, in, this is an article that I had read in 2013 where you talked about uh, divide in the atheism movement because at that particular right. time, and I think it was probably at its strongest, it's, it's I think, mm -hmm. calmed down. And I, have, I was doing a show myself around that time too that dealt with the subject of group polarization. And I think that this is a topic that is going to be coming back a lot uh, in, and and it's, it's probably going to get worse, especially as religious violence and that kind of stuff were influenced and we see it much more. We can't quite ignore it anymore. And I think that it's going to be the forefront issue. So let's, let's bring it back to the beginning of that. And let's, let's introduce people to that concept first of all. How would we describe the effect of why human beings become divided? What are some of the I reasons why that happens? Sure. Well, there's several reasons that are really strong and have been well studied in social psychology. I mean, you could just think about basic in-group, out-group bias. I mean, that's probably just one of the most strongest effects you can see in social psychology. We just have this basic need almost to identify with one group and everyone that's not in our group we want to kind of dismiss and not talk to. And you see that just so much in every kind of social situation. On every level, right? From small group to large to countries. Yeah. Yep, definitely. It's just something, you know, you can talk about whether it's uh, evolutionary, adaptive, or whatever. The fact is it's something that's really strong built into our brains. I guess there's, um, you know, obviously we realize what that means, but part of the 
problem I think we have is we don't realize there are tools nowadays that actually make that a lot easier. And I'm mm -hmm. referring here specifically to the Internet. And this is something That's that right. we're... We, we have benefited, let's say, as, as atheists from it, but also because we're so intimately connected with it, I think this is why we feel that effect. We're essentially, I think what the main problem that people are talking about now is the echo chamber that is occurring. Right. And, and say, what, what part of that, I mean, like that's, that's obviously, we, you know, it's part of the outgroup thing, but this is a very real psychological effect. What is that... What does that uh, play into, like psychologically, or what's happening in your brain when that's occurring? Well, I think it depends again on the the situation and a lot of other factors. But I mean, if you want to first to identify with your own in-group, you know, it's going to have one layer of it, and then the next one is if you're online, for example, that kind of removes some of the accountability, and you can kind of dehumanize people a lot easier that are not perhaps in your in-group. So all of a sudden you have this strong need to identify with certain people and to dismiss other people. And then you also have this uh, really easy way to dismiss people that um, are just, you know, text on a screen instead of an actual person. Right. So the, the, it's a, in, in a sense dehumanism, dehumanizing someone, mm -hmm. that's part of the process sure. of outgroupness, right? We, we, we noticed this in, say, the Rwandan genocide where people are just trying to refer to other human beings as cockroaches. or and, and, and I guess that part of that is, is there a language, like could, could you even measure the way that a person looks at another human being by the way they also use language to describe them? Like, is, so, like the same way that, for instance, if I eat um, uh, pork, right, I don't say I'm, I'm having pig right now, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I use a language mask in a sense, oh, to, sure. to, to kind of avoid the reality. But the reverse of that can also be true, where I take, a hu I take the word human, and I, now I'm using a different word. Is there, like, literally a part of my brain that is, you know, sort of like being hijacked when I do this? Is language a way to kind of, like, switch our own, uh, I guess, interpretation of what something is? Sure. Well, in that article, I think I mentioned um, this process of amygdala hijacking. Yeah, yeah, you did. And it's basically just a, a rough way to say that whenever you're feeling something really emotional and strong, it's going to kind of take over the emotional parts of your brain, namely uh, the amygdala is a big one. And whenever you're feeling so emotional, one way to kind of uh, get back into a more um, level and objective zone is to try to remove yourself from it. So ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? Why is this person doing this? Why would I want to type this thing? Um, and just kind of you know, get the literally get the blood flowing to other parts of the brain that are more involved in reason and, and um, less uh, gut reaction kind of thinking. And again, that's a really rough way to describe it. But whenever we do take a step back, we can um, become calm a lot easier and then have a uh, much easier time having rational discourse. Well, I also think that it, it's all it's on us too to see when someone else is being hijacked. What are some of the ways that we can mitigate, you know, let's say I'm talking to someone and it's obvious that I've hit a nerve, right? There's, there's got to be ways where I'm like, is it, can I appeal to some part of a person's brain that's going to calm that down or have I already lost if they're not aware of it? I mean, honestly, if someone's like screaming at you or, or um, really upset, there isn't a whole lot you can really say. Uh, at least in my experiences, there might be, again, maybe if I want to went the, the clinical route, that would have a better answer for you. But 
and and in my experiences and other people I've talked to, it's really hard when someone's full blown upset, which you know makes sense. And I think it's important to realize that you know no one's the arbiter of someone else's emotions, and if they're upset, we should try to empathize with them first and like just understand why they're upset and not get mad at them for being upset as well. Or not even, or don't be sympathetic, like offer false empathy where you're saying, well, or you try to countervene a person's emotion, be like, why are you angry? There's so much to be, you know, so much beauty <laughs> exactly. in the world or something like that. And so you're dismissive and you're like, that's not empathy. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's oh, barely yeah. sympathy. <laughs> yeah, that's something, that's just a general pet peeve of mine is whenever people... People just because uh, we want to we want to remove that bad feeling that person has. Especially, let's say the person that's upset is our friend. We want them to feel better, so we just be like, "Hey, you know, feel better. You know, everything's going to be okay." But sometimes we have to just absorb some of that negative feeling because maybe it's not okay. Maybe something actually bad did happen, and we just have to listen to them and try to be as empathetic as we can. Yeah, I think part of the problem is. Uh you know, like again, maybe it's a language thing. We're conditioned to be to say it's a, it's going to be okay. Man, that's a rotten thing to say. I mean, <laughs> obviously that is the last thing I want to fucking hear if I'm right. upset. I'm like, of course it's going to be okay. Time passes, empires fall, species are wiped out and obliterated, suns explode, the universe moves on. Not the thing I want to hear at this fucking moment. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And. It's tough. It's tough for both sides. And again, we just have to, as best we can, think about whenever we're feeling like that, you know, what would we like to hear? We don't want someone to just tell us it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it, <laughs> you know. But again, like you said, we're kind of conditioned that that's for some reason our go-to statement. Well, we just, I think that we, we feel a bit embarrassed by the emotions of others as well, especially because they can be waylaid in some fairly unexpected times, you know, like, I'm just having a fine day, da -da -da. Oh, I was uh, assaulted, and you're just like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, I mean, I think in general, humans are, are pretty shit at dealing with their emotions and talking about emotions, it's just something, for whatever reason, we, we don't really tackle that head on, and that's something I, I talk about um, as I've been getting more involved in the gender equality movement with, with men in particular, we feel like there's this like social pressure to be tough and stoic, right. and a lot of times that's the last thing that we want to be. Well, there was a very interesting – I linked to it um, a, a few weeks ago. There was this uh, um, woman who had disguised herself as a man for a while, and she went undercover as a man. And uh, her analysis of what the problem was with men was very interesting. She says, men are hurting, and they don't talk to each other. And she's, she said that even when she came out as a woman to every male friend that she had made, they were more comfortable sharing their feelings with her than when she was a woman than with each than when she, he was a or she was a man. So you're kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, you see that it, it's, it's the inability to deal with those emotions that really cause so much of that internal pain, so much of the struggle I think that men go through is, is, is not talked about. Yeah, definitely, and uh, it's really unfortunate because it hurts everyone. It hurts, you know, the individual and and the people they interact with. So it's something that we just kind of need to all have the the courage to rise above those societal expectations and be like, you know what, it's okay that I'm feeling like this. I don't care if you know someone's not going to think I'm as a man or I'm, I don't I'm not manning up or, or any of that bullshit. Like, just rise above it and realize that 
it's okay to feel things because you're a human being. See, this is why I think that everybody needs in their life to go and live in the city or live somewhere where they, you know, are a little bit anonymous because they realize that it doesn't really matter what people think of you. You can live in a world mm -hmm. where you're almost entirely anonymous and no one's going to give a shit. Oh, you walked into the grocery store in your jogging pants. <laughs> Who cares? Right? It's not going to be the new, the talk of the town here. It doesn't disperse right. in the way that gossip does in small places. And I think that this is, you know, like that whole, I the dangers of in-groups are that, they, that those pressures that are put on us are, are is what the in-group is, is doing to us, really. It's, it's nasty, those kinds of effects. We desire so much of it, but it, it offers a lot of times these poisonous uh, you know, elements that wouldn't be there if we didn't have such a desire to, to fit into a group. Right. Yeah, that's a good, great point. I mean, it's, yeah, whether it's living in a city or just having some experience where you can realize, like you said, that, you know, it's okay. You know, we're all, we're all in this together and, you know, it kind of removing the boundaries, you know, like Carl Sagan, when he talks about the, the pale blue dot and what, how powerful of a, a statement that is, that there are no barriers here. We're all on this planet playing together and Whenever we can try to think about that, it's really hard, but whenever we can, I think it uh, definitely reduces a lot of tension. I guess the, the, the challenge that we have is that we know that this, this phenomenon occurs and that we are not immune from it as atheists. I think, though, the one thing that probably um, is different, and I don't know if you'd agree with me on this one, is the fact that as an atheist, you're always forced to really see and empathize with the cultures of others and the beliefs of others. And yet those same beliefs have no requirement to do that with ours. And I think that this is why we can we practice a little bit more empathy, while, why our radicalization, let's say, will always be less than someone who doesn't really have to consider our thoughts at all, and in fact who considers us deadly enemies. So the question therefore becomes, if that effect is true, and the, and the more we become, let's say, um, powerful or large, the more those fundamentalist groups will strengthen I mean, this is an undeniable effect, right? Polarization mm -hmm. causes, like, yeah. more radicalization. So how can we avoid or how can we mitigate this? What, is, what, what do you think one of the solutions is to this very difficult problem? Gosh, uh, that's a tough it one. It is a tough I one. You don't have to have an I answer. Think, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the, the short answer is I don't know. Um, uh, a longer answer would be to kind of talk about uh, the process of self-awareness. I, I, I get into a lot of discussions with atheists about um, how they might think that they are more rational or reasonable than theists, and that's not often the case. I mean, there's plenty of atheists that have all sorts of biases and blind spots, and I think in particular to atheists, we have to be extra careful not to think that we're above any of those sort of uh, cognitive shortcuts. So that would be the first thing I would recommend to all atheists listening to this and in general, just to kind of take a step back and be like, hey, you know, I'm just a human, just as much as that fundamentalist Christian. Yeah, we have different belief systems, but when it comes down to it, uh, we have a lot more similarities than differences. And to you know, not really fall prey to thinking that you're going to be immune to some of these, these biases. I guess that for me, you know, I've been thinking about that problem for a while, which puts me at a slight advantage. Because I mm -hmm. I did, you know, um, what's what, what's that Sarah thing Sarah Palin? I got I, I gave you a gotcha question really. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, here's m my solution to it, I suppose, is not really a solution that I came up with. It actually, I wish I could remember his name because I'm just pulling this up right now. But there is this uh, man in the United States, he's, he's African-American, and what he does is he goes out to clan uh, he goes out to meet people who are part of the Ku Klux Klan, and he basically collects their hoods when they quit, after they realize that they've been dehumanizing someone that is very human and very warm and very open. And he, that's, that's his whole life thing now. He goes out and he's basically, I'm going to convert people with kindness. So in a weird way, I guess <coughs> my solution is that the further they get, the more effort we have to make to communicate with them and to appear uh, more genuine and friendly. And I think that that's going to be... Because the, uh, the other solution, which is to strengthen ourselves and to also radicalize, I'm like, we'll probably find ourselves political on the spectrums where the right and the left meet at one point. They are the same thing in their repression, their jackbootedness or whatever. There's no distinction. you know. So we want to avoid that. So I, I think right. we have to try to pull them back a little by being like, you know, by trying to reach, you know, communicating with them, talking to them, going right. even to their places of worship and being polite enough to listen through it and not be a dick the whole time and then talk to them after oh, and be right. like, hey, look at me. I came here and I was cool. You should try doing the same thing sometime with us. Right. I agree with that 100%. Um, another thing that I find very frustrating with atheists is whenever they're so so mean to people that are religious and you know p part of me gets it when I was a, a baby atheist I you know was really angry I'd you know read a lot of Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins and Harris I'd be like yeah you know fuck religion and then as I kind of got over that and grew up a little bit I realized you know again these people are just like us in a lot of ways and it's so counterproductive to to be fighting them and, and making fun of them instead of trying to build bridges uh, for example um, I do some lobbying uh, for the Secular Coalition of America. I'm one of the co-chairs of my South Carolina group. And one of my favorite uh, allies to work with is the Catholics for Choice group and learning from them. And, you know, they're Catholics, and we disagree on, you know, theology stuff. But when it comes down to reproductive rights, we're on the same page, and we get along fine. So why would I go up to them and be like, oh, I don't want to work with you guys. You know, you believe something dumb. That's the worst thing I can do if I want to actually have positive social change. Well, the truth is we all believe in a lot of dumb things that will be proven or disproven at some point that will show that we've been on the wrong side of history in a lot of things. I, right. I just don't want us to be too smug. I think that this is the problem that we've suffered. Because let, let us say that we are right and, and, and we, we, there is no God, right? Because, again, I need, must have the possibility that there is one. But that, that fact itself doesn't make you better for believing it in yeah. any way, shape, or form. And that's the thing that I think that people have to understand. But the, we talked about the frustration part of it. I mean, you can go back and listen to my shows, and there's plenty of angry rants out there. And I did those because sure. a lot of times people need to vent. There's a, a lot of sure. frustration, and as a group, we get shit on like as much as rapists do. So it can be, it can <laughs> right. be a little hard, and you're like, man, this sucks. So, sure. And if you're in the thick of it, you know, if you're not isolated by academia, you can have an ivory tower attitude of saying, let us reach out and be open. But the truth mm -hmm. is, you know, the same way that uh, I would not recommend to a person who's an atheist uh, and former Muslim to go out and, and really reach out to the most fundamentalist groups, we have to realize that there is yeah. a, 
there's there's that fine line where we were like we have to reach out, but at the same time, the with with the people that we reach out with, if they don't speak as loudly as we do towards the effect of those fundamentalists, we need to bring them in line. That's our job, and that's part of that communication being like, you need to dial their rhetoric down because your belief system is their crutch, and that you, you share that responsibility. Like, if we had a bunch of atheist maniacs, we'd take that fucking responsibility, wouldn't we? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, you're totally, you're totally right. Um, and y we have to speak in the, the same language. So, again, if, if someone's super... Fundamentalists are causing trouble. Um, let's say they're a Christian. Then let's say we're friends with liberal Christians, and we can be like, "Hey, you know that guy causing all that shit. We should, you should talk to them." And they'll have a much more powerful effect than we would. Just like again, like the, and there are some atheists that do some dumb things, and we have a lot more power to be like, let's say if there's a an atheist that goes around and you know burns a church down, you know, we're gonna have a lot more effect to talk with them and address the atheist community on why that's a bad thing rather than a, a Christian coming in and trying to do the same. Well, we, we've had instances where there was some vandalism at uh, uh, a few churches in Moss that were probably the results of, uh, you know, frustrated atheist teens, let's say. And uh, right. right away there was a response, you know, both financial and volunteer, because yeah. I think that we recognized that as soon as we started putting up little labels for ourselves and threw up the atheist flag, it meant that there were a few other responsibilities. And the, and the people out there that consider themselves atheists and be like, well, I'm just an atheist. That doesn't mean anything. I don't need to do nothing. I'm like, <laughs> listen up, pal. All right. Your beliefs themselves, the same way that you say religious belief have consequences, your unbelief has consequences, too, in what it does to the right. people around you. So if you think that you live in a fucking bubble and nobody needs to do anything about you, and they're like, what the hell, man? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, like that person that never wants to bring it up, you know, they, they could have a powerful effect. You know, if they're hopefully they're a good person and they, you know, mention to someone else, hey, you know, I don't believe in God, and that changes the other person's perspective on what atheism is, then they can have a lot of uh, power for, you know, making us as a group less hated. So it's kind of um, foolish for them to kind of. Uh, get rid of that the power they have just because they don't really want to get involved or whatever. Well, I, th I think that for some people, not being involved is a kind of power. I remember I used to be like that as a kid, where, uh, where you know, like let's say everybody in my family decided they wanted to go trick or treating, and the only way to have power would say I don't want to do it. <laughs> right. And it gives you a lot of power when you're like that. And who's going right. to say no to fucking power? <laughs> not many people. Not many people at all. And you know, the measure of someone is often like how they react when they have power. And I think that you, you probably you know this, that we um, most of us don't react very well to power. No, and that's, that's something I, I think about a lot as far as just how we can, you know, with all the problems in our world, you think about when corruption happens and all that stuff. And yeah, like, let's say that you have a really great guy or great woman who runs for office, and all of a sudden they get elected and they start going up the ranks. They might start to get a little bit more corrupt as they have more power for whatever the reason. It's kind of <laughs> just kind of how humans are, and I'm not sure how we combat that. It's built into our brains to thrive on power for whatever the reason it may be. And again, you can say talking about uh, self-awareness or um, trying to be empathetic to other people, but it gets really hard when you have a lot of influence and power. Yeah, we we still haven't figured out that, but. I think ultimately what we will admit to is that we were a bit of an incomplete product as a species, and now we're facing a lot of uh, pretty fundamental uh, flaw issues.
in our program. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point, and it, it's so frustrating whenever someone will say, uh, you know, humans are the the pinnacle of evolution, or you know, we're somehow better than other species. I mean, that's just not correct. And there's a lot of flaws. I mean, we're still a new species. We still have a lot of uh, programming errors for dealing with, you know, how, uh, how rapidly changing our society is. And we just really need to be aware of that. That's the first thing is, hey, I have biases that I don't really like about myself. What can I do about them? I think that should be everyone's number one step before they really do anything. Sure. I mean, like, look, when we look at the lineage of apes that could have gone and and lived a successful little career. You see that, you know, let's say you got Homo, I think Gigantus, I forget which one he was, like some kind of giant beast that looked like Harry and the Hendersons kind of thing, you know what I mean? Like that could yeah. have been us, maybe a little bit less smart and just still be in caves, I don't know. Or maybe let's say that if the Homo erectus line would have gone through, the Bonobos maybe had their chance and they all they want to do is fuck. So maybe <laughs> they would take a little bit longer to develop a whole civilized society or something like that if they went that route. But at least there'd be a lot more fucking the last fighting. <laughs> That's true. That's a very good point. Maybe they have all the solution. Right? Yeah, maybe they have the ultimate solution. You're like, are you frustrated? Are you angry? Go get a blowjob, and then you'll feel way better. <laughs> and I'm like, no monkey or no ape is going to deny that that's true. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I I think <laughs> can't that, argue with that I think actually that is the solution. You know, when we look at well, how does power, how does power corrupt people? Well, usually people want power, and you talk to most men who do. Like Henry Kissinger, good example. Why did Henry Kissinger want power? To get laid, really. So I mean, every time you make an important decision, I think you should have had your dick sucked or your pussy stimulated before you make any important global decisions, because you won't be frustrated or mad with power. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting thesis. I mean, I'm not sure if anyone's uh, done research on that. The postcoital <laughs> effect? Yeah, on, on civilization. We haven't really thought about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're the best human beings right after. You won't deny that. The best of humanity yeah. po is postcoital. <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, I, I, I don't have anything to say. There you go. <laughs> it's a research thesis level uh, worthy. So anybody out there, I mean, it's wide open. Oh, you, you think that your research topic is boring? Switch it up, baby! You could have the best and most fun research topic ever, studying post-coital effect on, you know, power dynamics. <laughs> I'm looking for research grants. I'm going to go to Pornhub. I'm sure they'll finance it. What do you think? They might. I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, now there's a lot more research on sexuality and, and pornography and all that stuff, so... Maybe someone will use this to figure out why human beings behave the way they do. That'd be interesting. Absolutely, and I think that definitely when we just we should look at our monkey cousins, you know, just to get a little bit of a lesson. And like I said, I don't think we've tried the bonobo way enough, and I'd like to see much more research into their really amazing <laughs> solution for living in this society. Because you know, you look at the chimpanzee, and they're more like us. They like to bash each other in the head a couple of times, defend their <laughs> territories. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's the solution for us. I don't like it. I think we're all a little pent up. <laughs> Let's go, yeah, bonobo. No, I agree. Go, bonobo. <laughs> this will be a new like slogan. We'll make T-shirts and shit. This will be a, a new hashtag. campaign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go, bonobo. That's it. I mean, that's just fun <laughs> to say. It is catchy. I know, right? Okay, let's start that hashtag right away, and we'll see. We'll watch it grow. You have a problem, world? Right. Go, bonobo. That's the solution. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds sounds foolproof to me. Mm -hmm. Well, there might be a huge raise uh, in like sexually transmitted diseases, and and oh, probably right. population increases and stuff like that. But uh, hey, there is no perfect solution out there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you know, 
If you want to fight wars, fight wars with the viruses that are going to be, you know, slowly eating our dicks. <laughs> There's always a war, my friend. There's always a war. So before we go, I want to ask you, so you're, right now, you, you want to kind of be known as a science educator, and you, and you want to do that a bit more. What's a field, like, or what's a topic right now that you're really focusing on? Like, what has kind of, like, got your radar going on? Like, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> sure. Well, I guess for me personally, it's what I'll be working on for my dissertation in the next couple of years that I'm here. And that's really just understanding how religious belief impacts the brain and specifically how it can be used to reduce anxiety and uncertainty. So we can kind of see this at really basic cognitive levels with really simple error detection tasks and um, brain activity that measures uh, responses to errors. We see this difference in both theists and atheists. And I think that's a really interesting research question for you know, from a religious point of view, but also just understanding how our brain works and how top-down level processing works. So now you realize that if I was a major news media, how I would spin that article and what it would sound like <laughs> on, my, on, the, on the headline, which would be very upsetting, I'm sure, to you as an <laughs> atheist, right? Oh, sure. And that's, that's something that, again, I've thought a lot about is like, you know, if I ever become more well-known as a science communicator, how is my work going to be viewed in the lens of the media? Probably not the way I'd want it to. Definitely. So no, I, can pr I can kind of give you a little preview. But if you, <laughs> if you want, here's what my solution would be. I would learn the Karl Marx quote on religion, the whole aspect of it, not just the opiate of the masses. But the thing that's most interesting about what he said was that it's, religion is the heart of a heartless world, the soul of a soulless situation. Right? Obviously, you can understand why it's a panacea for people. You're like, the world can be heartless. And here you have this mythology that tells you that somebody loves you. And in the world of that, yeah, in a heartless world, would you believe that they're, you know, in the fantastic if it makes you feel better? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And, you know, I'll, I'll try to do that, but, you know, everyone's going to have their own agenda and spin it however they, they'd want it to. I mean, it's already, <laughs> geez, just. A couple weeks ago, my, my local humanist group, we, uh, we had a food and clothing drive, and I saw a couple weeks after that, there was this Christian blog that compared us to Hitler. <laughs> because we were and, you know, like, how did, how did they even make that jump? Like, they, like, distorted the quotes I had in the newspaper, like, changed words around, and when you're dealing with those kind of people that are so biased, there isn't a whole lot you can do. But I can definitely try to be as uh, balanced and objective as I can whenever I talk about such a complicated and uh, emotionally invested issue. Sure. I mean, if you went to that media and you started quoting Karl Marx, they'd call you a damn communist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> doesn't matter what I say. You know? It really doesn't. I mean, you could, you could bring the poetry of, like, the masters and still <laughs> somebody would be like, say, what? What you say? <laughs> mm, what can you do? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, again, I think overall it's still a net gain to get people interested in science, even if it comes with the uh, some of the baggage that goes with, you know, promoting it to a mainstream audience. I I want to believe that, you know, science educators still are doing, you know, good and getting people interested in science and getting people to think more. Well, I'm going to give you a bit of a, um, I'm going to give you a report card since you are an American and we do know the stats on how people feel about science. And I'm going to give you guys a D. You understand that, right, why I'm doing this, right? There's a few reasons. 
And the main one is that you at you have a population that has the Library of Alexandria on steroids in their pockets, <laughs> and still the major beliefs in things like evolution hasn't budged in ten years. In fact, if it's budged at all, it's budged towards people who the people that believe it believe that it's <laughs> God directed. So I would argue right. it's actually budged in the wrong direction. So you get a D. You get a <laughs> D from me. How do you feel about that D? I don't feel good. You know, hopefully I can do better next semester, right? <laughs> See, that's a positive attitude because I think that, honestly, you, everybody can do better, but the solution is a, is a bit difficult. It's kind of like how do we deal – I mean, we, we talked about this before. How do we reach out to people who have so set themselves against it or who define science in ways that warp it so it's you know unrecognizable? How do we get to those? How do you communicate with those people who dislike facts because it makes them upset? Right, and that's that's always going to be a problem. I mean, there's a couple ways you can try to think about it. One is getting people to try to speak their same language, whether it's you know Christians speaking to other Christians that maybe you know ones that don't believe in evolution, they're uh, uh, talking to ones who do. Um, but the, the problem is, you mentioned the the internet thing. So if I were to Google, you know, evolution is true or evolution is false. I'm going to get a bunch of links for both of those. And if you're biased, you're going to be more likely to choose the one that you like anyway. So there's tons of research articles that look and appear like real science that support creationism. And if you're not educated in science, you don't have a very good science literacy, you're going to have a difficult time distinguishing the difference. So I think it's important for us educators to really uh, emphasize the method and the techniques that go into describing what good science is versus bad science. Yeah, I guess you're going to have to go out there and make a bunch of science ninjas because <laughs> seriously, um, we're losing the fight on this one a little bit, i got to say. It's not looking too good. I mean, it, it basically what it feels like it's happening is that there's two worlds that are being created, a highly educated scientific world and one that's very distrustful of it, even though they enjoy all of its amenities. Right, and yeah, that's the last thing we want to do is have that huge divide between us. So I think we just got to keep working on it. There needs to be more scientists engaging with the public. That's a big, huge issue. And once we kind of get more people educating to mass audiences in productive ways, I'd like to think, and this is my faith and my belief, that it's going to get better. Now, uh, there's only one thing that I think you're missing Matt, and I've been looking sure. at your, you know, press photos or whatever, and one of them, you know, you have a tie or whatever, and you have this fresh-faced little, you know, you're, it's a bit of a boy face, we won't deny that. <laughs> and here's what I think, you need, you'll, you need to capitalize on that, man, get some bow ties going, you know, be the new <laughs> Bill Nye, man. I mean, I don't think he would be that hurt if you started to have a bow tie and started to make people feel a little bit more comfortable about science, because, you know, the truth is... The thing about Bill Nye that made him so great was that he was very non-threatening. And you, uh, sir, as a you know, boy-faced white boy, are as bad non-threatening <laughs> as you get. You know what I mean? So uh, let's, That's a good point. Let's get you even more like, do you want some fucking Buddy Holly glasses or something <laughs> like that that we can just add to the mix? <laughs> Gosh, you know, I haven't really even considered that. But, yeah, you know, you might be right well, as far as – Science educator you know. and, edu and entertainer are not that far apart, and that's the last thing that you need oh, to definitely. put into your, you know, your future plans. Like, you know, you can't be a stuffed shirt and talk about science anymore. you got to talk people's language. 
Yeah, definitely. And that's something I've been trying to learn. You know, again, this is a, a new-ish, uh, you know, adventure for me. So I'm always trying to be more uh, engaging, but also accurate. And that's that's always uh, the trick. Well, if, you, if you'd love some advice, I'm not always good with the accurate part, but always good with the entertainment part. So I'm more than happy to provide any advice when it comes to that. And I strongly encourage any, any of you out there that are listeners that are interested in having uh, this kind of discussion have Matt on your show you can go to his website now your your name is a little hard to to, to spell to kind of know so we're gonna have to spell it out for everybody <laughs> so that's Matthew uh, Fasini is F-A-C-C uh, Fasciani sorry is F-A-C-C-I-A-N-I-A dot com so uh, it's a little bit yeah it's not you didn't pick an easy name can we give you a star name you know let's <laughs> let's start with that well I I'd like to think that'll make me unique and help my uh, my visibility, right? Yeah, maybe we'll just call you Matt the Science uh, Brat or something. <laughs> you know, some of the rhymes. Not, oh not, the, best, yeah, not the best one. My apologies if it sticks, by the way. Just some that rhymes. But I'm just, uh, you know, you, you got to make it easy on people to find yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, Bill Nye, the science guy. That's You can't get much better than that. I know. And, and look at me. So my name, Jacob... Fortin, which is how it's supposed to be pronounced. Nobody knew how to do it. So what did I do? I became Jacob Fourteen. You can go to my site, <laughs> Jacob14.com. I didn't make it hard for people. <laughs> you know, the first lesson of the first lesson of, of, of education, you know this. Don't make it too right. hard on people because brains are lazy. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well we're gonna figure things out. We're gonna get Matt to be a bigger deal because he came on the show as a bit of my test. I wanted to see how good of a science communicator is and I thought we had a great discussion I'm sure most people will agree so let's uh, let's let's finish up his look what as soon as he has a PhD too we can make some that rhymes with doctor by the way right that's true oh. that's a very good point so you know he's just he's still cooking he's got well, how long before <laughs> how long before you're done here oh gosh yeah like I was mentioning earlier I'm gonna be starting my dissertation soon so hopefully a year but you know a year and a half so dissertations are always Rather nebulous for how long they take. Mm. Well, you got to go out and you got to impress uh, your your peers. So yeah, yeah bow tie right. might not uh, hurt. <laughs> I don't know how they feel about them. <laughs> That's a good point. The bow ties are coming back. I'm just saying. You know, like I'm. I'm yeah, you know, I have to I have to look into that. I I don't even think I own a bow tie, so I have to try some on. Not just that, but on the internet, you can do bow ties with like double bows or triple <laughs> or whatever. You could be Matt the triple bow tie guy. Or whatever. <laughs> That's true. I mean, that would be, you know, I'd be my own person at that point. I wouldn't be just following Bill and I. Right. Well, you know, unfortunately, whenever we take our first steps into something, usually we rip people off. But uh, <laughs> uh, people have no memory for things. I mean, it's like Kanye West fans are, are just found out about Paul McCartney. They're like, who's this guy? <laughs> and you're just like, oh, right. I hate the world. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. So we're we're hoping that Matt will pick will will pick up those shoes because we need more science educators. That's the truth. It's a, it's a it's an important job. He could be the next uh, Bill Nye or Robert Ingersoll. You know, who knows? The future is yeah. the future looks bright. <laughs> well, th well, Matt, thanks for coming on the show and sharing uh, some of your uh, laying the knowledge smackdown on us in uh, terms of your <laughs> efforts. And I'm sure everybody is now far more curious about you and, and want to hear you uh, speak more. I think they should definitely book your ass. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, you know, book my ass as much as they want. <laughs> that's what I want to do, you know, as I said. So it was, it was great to talk with you and be on your show, and hopefully it was an uh, interesting and uh, enlightening discussion. 
Well, there is no doubt that it was uh, uh, all of those things, but uh, it remains to be seen how people feel about it. All right, with that, my name is Jacob Forte. <laughs> Have a good atheist day, everybody. Holy cow, that was a good one, man. That was pretty good. Well, uh, I have high hopes for Matt. So, if, uh, I, as I mentioned on the sh uh, during the show, during the interview, if you uh, if you're listening out there and, and you organize events, I think he's a good science communicator. So, uh, well, reach out. He's available. He's available. Honestly, it, and and I I pointed this during the interview that the the problem we have is even if American let's say uh, uh, acceptance of evolution might have gone slightly up. That's a pathetic number when you consider the fact that everywhere else it's skyrocketed because you live so in the low. age of information. It's still so low. It's wicked low. And wicked low. You know, I was uh, watching this TED Talk the other day about uh, science communication and how if some junk uh, PR firm releases uh, a press release explaining that there's been a new scientific discovery, something like 9 out of 10 major news outlets are that many, will actually pick up the story and just run with it as though it were fact. And only one out of the ten, I guess, that they uh, they were talking about actually dug a little bit deeper to go and check the, the cited work. Well, do you remember back... Total bunk. Look, do you remember bunk. back in the late that's 1990s when we were uh, reading abcnews.com or <laughs> .go while it was... before it really fell through? They actually... They used to actually have a couple of science writers that were really good. Remember that guy that had, like, oh. the weird balding and the poofy hair? John Paul, uh... Mm. What evs? You can look it up on the internet. We have the ability to do this if you want to. Alan Paulos? Is that his name? <laughs> John Paul Alanos? I don't know. Alanos? Do you, you're going to force me. Right you're going to force me to edit this, but, yeah. But I feel like back in the day... The, the they actually hired real scientists to write the science section. And nowadays it's more like they'll hire journalists who have a bit of scientific knowledge and the ability to go to Wikipedia. You know what I mean? You're, I have rarely read a science article that has actually taught me something. And that's kind of sad. You know, you feel as though the people who are writing it are just, well... Let's say not exactly scientifically now uh, knowledgeable. So that's that's kind of sad. It's not John like the old days. Alan Paulos. Paulos. Yes. Anyway, I don't know why I was stuck on that. I don't article. know when they fired him. The article used to be really good. They used to be really good. I feel like um, just thinking back to high school science. One of my biology teachers said, you know, even if you're not going to become a scientist, it's generally good and important to be scientifically literate enough to tell the difference between total junk in an article and uh, and something that might be interesting, true and, and relevant, to, to pick up even just a popular science magazine or something like Popular Science Magazine, American or whatever you like to read, and, and just be able to understand what is being said and why it's maybe significant. I think that the, well, the, the simpler way to explain that is simply, I would say, you can always detect how knowledgeable someone is uh, at something, uh, depending on how Simply, they can explain it. And for the most part, when I read a scientific article, I feel as what they're doing is they're actually explaining things in a way that's complicated to hide the fact that they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Right. <laughs> so if you can't explain it simply, you probably don't get it. That's just, well, unless the thing is so complex that that's impossible. But, you know, I don't know. Even uh, then. That's a really interesting point you bring up there. I think uh, we could all do with a little bit more.
Tonight on the Sketchy Podcast, we give you a short introduction to the show as well as a free preview of one of the Sketchy Magazine stories, All the Best, Uncle Watson. That's coming up tonight. But first, here's your host, Jacob Fourteen. All right, now you might be curious as to what just happened Ooh, there. That's weird. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. We decided that we were going to split the show up into two pieces. Right now, you're no longer listening to the Good Atheist. You were you were listening to that, but now you're what? into a new show. What? I know it almost sounds the same because unfortunately it has the, the same two hosts. So in the same studio. I don't know if it sounds samey, but it, you're not listening to the same show anymore. This is a different show. Where the hell are we, dude? You're listening to the Sketchy Podcast now. Oh. You're in the Sketchy Zone. That sounds sketchy. Yeah. Now, what is sketchy? Well, first of all, it's a lot of things, but primarily it's a magazine. A magazine. Okay, a I magazine. know those. Magazine. And uh, do you remember, like, you've read Mad Magazine, right? Before? Loved Mad Magazine. Loved it. Way better than Cracked. Well, look. Cracked has its place. Cracked has but a great Mad website. has a better place. Mad is more... Cracked really thrived online. More Cracked than the magazine, online. in my opinion. But here's the thing. Mad was, had the great artwork, had like all the... I mean, it pioneered it. The whole humor magazine shit. But it was an experience, man. Picking up a Mad magazine. Oh, you yeah. knew your afternoon was set. You're like, oh, dude, this is going to be good. Anybody that's older than 40 years old and you walk around with a Mad magazine, especially one that looks like it's old, they <laughs> will fucking wet their pants. I don't know why Mad magazine doesn't make more money printing retro comics and selling that to their fucking dudes. So good. But so they're missing out on that. They're missing comics. out on that. But they are a huge influence on me. I always love that old old school magazine look but i'm talking old school i'm not i don't i'm not talking about the modern magazines that you're fucking buying at the convenience store that is bullshit full of ads that suck balls no nah, man i miss the old school ones that are just i don't know as soon as you open them they've got the tiny weird old school lettering and just the formatting is all just I know they they had this. It was artistic back then, the way they had to arrange everything. It was really great. So you're doing a physical magazine. I decided to do a physical magazine. What else? What else is this? Well, the, it's beyond just a physical magazine. We we've called this. A, we decided to call this thing a magazine. Magazine. Because you see, in the now that we live in the future. <laughs> I guess that's a contradictory statement. But now that we live in the future... <laughs> then when we live in the future... Then when we live in the future, we have the ability to provide a piece of entertainment in very many different formats. From the electronic, to the physical, to the to the digital, well, audio-wise, to video. There are many ways in which you can present one piece of artwork. And so what I decided to do is I, I brought together a few artists... And That's we cool. decided to do some comics and some stories together. And just, like I said, kind of the old way that these magazines used to be put together. This was a very popular genre before the internet kind of distracted us all, you know? Yeah, well, it's funny. You know, I'll be honest. I, I do a ton of reading online. I'm a news junkie. I like science articles. I do a, a lot of nonfiction reading. Um Sometimes I like to buy a magazine and have it in my hands. You know, it's it's fun to have something on a couch that's not technology for once, or when you're on a plane, or or whatever. But well, how about something that but gets people talking? But most of my reading is online, so I kind of like having the option of both, honestly. Well, this is why I think the magazine is not just oh, you're 
you're reading it or you're, you know, physically or you're reading it on your device. Yeah. But we're also, all the stories that are in Sketchy, and we're going to feature one of the stories in the magazine on this show. Because each each magazine that we release comes with four podcasts. Holy one moly. One of them is free. This is one of the ones that is free, and we'll feature them in the Good Atheist Podcast, because we might as well. But the other ones are paid for. This one better be free, because we pulled a mad bait and switch on you. We did pull a bait and switch. <laughs> but we did give them a full show. You know the interview that I did? That's at least one hour. So this is a fucking two-hour show. We're right. being generous okay. here. Huh? We're not being cheapskates. All right. But we're giving them a flavor of things. So this is, I think, all together, this is almost a two-hour show. Plus, That's stuff. insane. I know, right? But we're also going to give them... Like we want to give people that taste because each podcast that we release in this four-parter, three of them, the ones that behind the paywall, will feature the stories that's inside the magazine. Right. Because I guess that after I finished writing Bible stories, I started really like writing fiction. And now I, <laughs> this is a very common thing in, with my friends. They know this. I don't have a very good memory about my childhood or my youth. Doesn't remember anything. I don't remember Even nothing. Even like five years ago. It's pathetic. This is why I have to have the same friends as my youth. They're here to remind me of how I used to be. I have no memories. Details. It's fucked up. But, see, I used to be really into making stories and making cartoons and comics. Even so far back before I did anything related to atheism that I actually forgot about it. But I've, I've been reconnecting with some of my older friends, and they reminded me of some of those really weird creative things I used to do. Like, sometimes I'd just make up stories about... These weird couples with odd quirks, and th this was a family of unusual people. Like, this is just a story I'd make up. I don't know if it had a point, but I was a little kid, you know? So this is something that I've been doing for a very long time. I guess it was just instinctual, and now it had a name. Uh, of course, it took me a long time to come up with one. But where did the name Sketchy come from? Why... Why is it sketchy, and uh, who is who is sketchy? Well, before it was called sketchy, we had I had lots of different names. I was going to call it weekly, with W E A K, and you're like weak, weekly, <laughs> like you're all publication. Weak. Yeah, weekly publication. But of course, I can't even make or that. Or the uh, what was the other one? Uh, uh, the Red Menace. Red R E A D. Yeah, Red, Red Menace. Which is kind of clever until you realize it is also every controversy. Every woman that would read that would just assume that it's a magazine about her period. Oh, jeez, why? So, what? Yeah, why the Red Menace. That? Okay. I think see. about it. I got you. It's kind of like the Red Baron, you know, whatever. Hmm. So for a while, I was kind of digging around for a name. I knew I wanted to make a magazine, and then this was during, this was January, and then all of a sudden there, were, uh, there was a terrorist attack in Paris, and nine cartoonists and uh, three editors were murdered brutally for publishing satirical cartoons about religion. And I swear to God when that happened... Trying to stamp out free speech was such a big mistake. But this is just right around the time where I'm like, I'm going to start a magazine. And then there are nine people that are murdered for doing exactly what I'm thinking of doing. And I don't know, I guess it felt personal. So there was a part of me that wanted to kind of design the magazine with that in mind, too, of just saying it's not just about publishing my short stories or my comics, but it's about saying something, too. It's about exercising the most fucking fundamental and important right, I think, that any human being has, which is the right to express themselves. That is the most important, because part of that expression could be, help, 
Yeah, the right to express yourself. Or we disagree with our overlords. Yeah, or I think that what people are doing right now in, let's say, Iraq or Syria is really fucked up. But we'll get into that and many other issues in the magazine. And, and, and so this was, this was an environment where I decided that I was going to include all these things. And there was a mascot that popped into my head. You know, like for after the events in Paris, the pencil became the symbol of free speech. And I, th- I thought to myself, right. what better fucking symbol? Drawing anything you're thinking, being free to yeah. create anything on the page because it's a safety zone. It's, it's separate from the physical, real world of yeah. violence. So imagine I'm sitting at home and I'm trying to think, what is the fucking name of this magazine? And I realized the pencil is the symbol of free speech. And I thought, well, if you were to design a mascot based on a pencil, what would his name be? And you'd be, his name would be Sketchy. But that has so many fucking implications. Right. And when that name popped into my fucking head, it was it. This is it. Sketchy Magazine. And if you look at the cover, you will see the mascot. The surly, angry part of me that many of you have come to love through the good atheist. The ranty part is, is emblemized, if you will, in this mascot that who's dedicated to speaking his fucking mind even if it upsets everybody. Well, I'm just looking at this uh, character on the cover and unlike most uh, pencil mascots? Yeah, pencil kind of characters we've seen uh, the eraser is on his head and the pointy part is essentially his butt or right. something. And so when he and writes... And is this, a, a, this is a favorite of Tommy Boy's, by the way. Is that a joint in his mouth? That is a joint in his mouth. Okay, just asking. But the the, the very favorite thing that of Tommy is the fact that uh, when he writes, it looks like he's taking a big giant shit. He, he takes a squat takes on a squat. whatever document he wants to deface <laughs> and just rubs it. And, and he kind of bites his lip. It's yeah. really uh, offensive. The thing is, too, he has a sidekick with him, Ace, who's uh, an eraser. And Ace represents a kind of, you know, like the part of ourselves that always tries to erase that really controversial thing that we were going to say or tries (laughs) to placate people. And sometimes I even do this. I'm guilty of this myself. He's the conscience and the censor. He's the conscience and the censor. But, you know, Sketchy has to ignore this motherfucker. He has to say what he wants to say, and he has to upset people. And I know that I'm not going to win a lot of popularity contests by doing this. And there are undoubtedly things that I'm going to say that are going to upset people. And the truth is it's going to come from both spectrums. I've seen plenty of people on the left and right be, you know, claim collective outrage and just be like, oh, you're triggering me and all these other things. You're oppressing me. You're offending me with what you're saying. Tons of people that want to find new ways to get you to shut the fuck up. But what they don't realize... This is the most important thing about fucking free speech is it's not just about your right to say something. It's about your right to hear other people. And I think that a lot of times... And and hear opinions you disagree with. Exactly. Just to be exposed to them. You have have to be. Challenge you once in a while. You must be in today's environment because we live in a world in which people are deciding to only hear things they find comforting. And it's easy to do this in the internet age. It's really easy. Anti-vaccination people, for instance, they find voices that agree with them all day long. They only click on the same links every day. They only visit the same communities. So for them, you know, like the... The, they would love to silence any speech that offends them. And it's a good way for someone to be stuck in a 
terrifyingly narrow worldview. And regardless of how offensive you think someone's speech is, the most important thing is for you to always be able to hear them and to really think about them and, if you want, criticize them. That's your right. Right. I mean, we're all um, mature enough, I think, to tune out things we really dislike. But that doesn't equate to censor everything. That just means... You know, if, if you don't like it, then we, we think you're adult enough to, to look away and choose a different media to consume. But we have to understand, too, that censorship today in today's world can mean that we use the Internet as a bullying mechanism to punish people we don't fucking like. And this is the new weird collective outrage that I don't like at all. And this is part of what's sketchy deals with as well. I'm not just talking about the censorship and the fucking, like, you know, like, it's easy to go on the right and their weird obsessions and anti-sex, anti-whatever. But we don't often look, you know, people who consider themselves on the left or progressive, we don't see our own uh, very repressive techniques and tools, collective shame and outrage and shit. And I'm like, I am fucking sick of that crap, too. Yeah, and well, I'm going to call that shit out. One thing that I was a bit pleasantly surprised by was, you know, Sketchy, looking at the the first uh, drafts and everything, Sketchy magazine is not trying to be Charlie Hebdo. It's not just trying no. to fill no, the pages uh, with, with nothing but shock. Yeah, value. nothing but shock. And you know, there's a place for that, and we're not sure. saying don't do it. Uh, obviously, we stand behind. And there's the even a bit of shock value to my own magazine. Sure, I sure, but that. but I I think what people will find is is that it's not trying to be just offensive like there's a ton of really interesting funny cool old-timey stories well for me it was the, the and the art, art in here and and yeah there's a bit of art that might offend well, the but act of subversion should never only be just you don't have to write the fucking communist manifesto like there's some hilarious hilarious comics in here there's some uh i'm a huge fan of fake ads there's well this is why i mean like many of the fake ads by the way it's good stuff. Con con uh, the contributions from T-Bod are always there. Uh, I know you, you're not mentioned in the uh, credits, but uh, that's not to mean that he is not involved. There are many silent partners. A bot anyway. You don't have to credit a fucking bot. <laughs> well, you but, know, but basically my, my point is like this. This is real art. There are several artists working on this. It's not just trying to be and more than the second issue. It's more of uh, you know trying to get artists together to actually be able to show off their wares and what they're good at. And say what the fuck they want to say. Uh, some great stories, some great art. Without fear. And yeah. uh, a safe environment. Really. And yeah, maybe, what, 10%, 15% is truly offensive to most people? Probably just that. Just yeah. that. But the other 85 is total gold. Yeah. Not that the offensive part isn't gold, but it, it's just art on its own. It, just, it stands you, on its own. For me, I, I almost make no distinction most of the time because I, I do believe probably in some truly offensive things and many of my stories for some people might seem themselves offensive and this is just magazine number one I don't even know what I'm going to be doing uh, for you know ten issues from now what's Who the, the theme in, what was the theme in volume one volume like what was the central kind of organizing principle here how did you decide the look and the feel well it was tough to pick a first one because yeah. there are each for me each magazine of sketchy is going to be based on a different theme you know and I wanted to do tons of different ones science fiction is a very 
strong theme. Or detective novels. You ever read those? Oh, those are great. I even wanted to do a romance one. Just a one-time one <laughs> where it was all these romance stories. For instance, I wanted to do a story about a young woman who loses her hair at a very young age. Right. And kind of her romantic struggles. I, it would be... Not your typical romance. Don't book, spoil it. All of those. But but what's all volume of those one about? Themes. Like volume how did you choose one, volume one? Well, the reason I thought volume one, I I should do this kind of nineteen late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties themes, is I had I guess this was just kind of a guess that I I thought that this would be a look that would come back, in a big way. Like not just I mean Mad Men was just the start, but there's there's kind of an attraction to that uh, simpler time if you want mm -hmm. because especially during America's long decline. <laughs> I think they look at the Golden Age, which is essentially, or the Gilded Age, which is really sh shortly after the war, which is when this, the look of the magazine is set to, towards a, you know, like a, a simpler time for them, a, a make-believe time where uh, things were good. But really the Everything reason was looking up. things were good was because the tax rate on the rich was 93%. That's that's right. real. That's the reason. Um, <laughs> a rare time in history. Do you want to talk about a sneak peek of some of the uh, stories, or? Uh, yeah, I think we should do the sneak peek because we will do a full story, the uh, all the best Uncle Watson, which I will not sneak peek. But we also feature uh, one short story, which is called The Voice. I don't know if you've ever read the the story The Lottery. It's very similar to that. Uh, I'm not going to say more. If you're not familiar with it, great. If you are, I've just given away the plot. Hey oh, <laughs> hey oh, and we are also the main. Uh, is it titular? I, I was getting it wrong. The story that's titillating, the, all right. The, <laughs> the main story is actually kind of an ode to those old school spy stories. Mm. Um, did you ever read like not James Bond, but you know the that those style? Of spy of, yeah, exactly. Fiction, the Cold yeah. War, the High of the Cold it. War. Oh, I love that stuff so much. So I thought. I had this idea for a story, and, and everybody who knows me always knows that I, ha I, I have a thousand plot ideas, and this one was one of those plot ideas that I'd always talked about, which is, what would happen if you were a spy, and all of a sudden you had, there is a, there's a disease where you can no longer recognize faces. <laughs> Not a good combo. Like being a spy. Every time you close your eyes or you look away from the person you were looking, they look like a stranger. It's it's almost like your brain can't differentiate between the things that you recognize. So I thought, if he has this condition, how the hell do you get out of your situation? So that's the kind of idea behind it. So each, I know each story is kind of like a, well, it's a, it's, it's a clever little idea like that. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so the, the, the first one was based on like, because this is the 1950s, I thought, height of the Cold War, the main story's got to be definitely set in, uh, you know, spy time-wise. So that was the first one. But yeah. if you, if I would have had to pick my number two choice, it would have been science fiction. Because, I mean, science fiction is hot as shit right Well, there's now. always volume two. Well, that will or be... I'm If I'm not mistaken, volume two will probably be your science fiction edition. Although... Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a lot of other stories I've been developing. I don't want to make any promises that I can't keep. And it really does depend on the reaction that we get from the first one. If people love that style, I might do another one because I have a few detective-style stories that would fit with that range. Who are some of the other uh, contributors to this volume one? Well, the, one of the artists that I've been uh, working with for a while now, I worked on uh, a few projects, and we could never work on, you know, get it working right, is... Um, Jose Luis uh, Gil is a Spanish artist who's just unbelievable. Like he's 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 one of those classic guys who's 
paints and who hmm. sculpts and who did music. But unfortunately, like he realized he had to pick one art style, and he had a love for comics. So if you, you know those kind of like old school 1960s, 70s style comics, you know, like with great architecture mm -hmm. dr style drawings, this is what he's really great at. And one day he's going to be work together. We're going to be working on that comic book. Remember the one I was telling you about, where you're even one character. Mm -hmm. He's the guy that's going to fucking draw because he's amazing. And good coloring, I find in what he does. Oh yeah, so yeah, great. yeah. He's. He, I mean, he's pro. Like he is dedicated to making comic books. Yeah. And uh, we have another uh, comic book artist called Afro Monkey, <laughs> who's. Um, he was actually heavily influenced by Mad Magazine as a. As Wicked. A kid. So he. His style is much more cartoony, very uh, almost European um, uh, style, you mm -hmm. know. While mine is much more kind of, I guess, a mix of Japanese and, and European. His right. is much more cartoony where, you know, like the big eyes, the slim limbs, the tiny necks, you know, those kinds. But I love Caricature his... Caricature almost. Oh, like very exaggerated. A lot of action bubbles and lines and clouds and... Yeah. And, cool. and from his description which is obviously very silly. You have to understand that this is a man who lives entirely for comics. <laughs> he has one of his cartoons where he's, you know, just eating comics and then vomiting out comics and he can't stop <laughs> himself. Like, this is his... That's his life. Afro his life is comics. Can't get enough. And so, you know, for him, he was really heavily affected from the attacks in uh, Paris as well. He's a cartoonist, you know, and he, he offends... So this was personal for him. So when I when I made a call and I said, "Dude, do you want to take part in this?" there was no hesitation. So this is these are the kinds of guys that I'm working with, you know. Like of course he wants to remain semi semi anonymous, but that is his right concerning the fact that he does controversial things. Indeed. But, but uh, like yeah. of all the uh the artists that I know, like and you included, one of the one of the big problems it seems is trying to get Trying to get paid at least something, even if it's a small amount, uh, for for your work. Everybody's trying to uh, give you a free opportunity to get your work out there. Um, that that just seems like such baloney. Like th these are yeah. skills that take years to master. Well, there's not a lot of people that would say, "Hey, um, I want to give you exposure as a doctor, so why don't you give me an appendicitis, and then I'm going to talk you up." Right? There's not a lot of professions <laughs> where people expect yeah, you to do no. things for free. <laughs> no. And art is definitely in trouble in that sense. And so, so for me, like providing a safe place for artists is providing a place in which I can pay artists. Right. Now the the first magazine was you know, their contribution. I said, listen, I can't pay for that first one. But there is absolutely zero fucking chance when I am not paying you for the second one. Because I want to be in a position where I, I, I am able to do the one thing that artists are always telling me they wish they could have, which is someone who pays them and who respects them enough. Well, we're not talking a huge amount of money here. No. We're just talking about no. something on time, right? Exactly. And, and so many artists, they live with that uncertainty of, if I finish a job... The next day when I submit it, will I get paid? Look, I mean, who's going to make fun of the hypocrites and bastards in power, if not for artists? Well, the problem is, I think you know, I don't know... We need, don't we need some a kind lot of critical of, well, voice here? There are a lot of people out there who really think, well, art is so fundamental that they'll, they'll do their 9 to 5 and they'll go home and they'll still make that art. And there are many people who think that way. I have debates with them all the time of saying, if you don't let people do this for a living, they're going to stop doing it. 
and and or the great ones are just gonna you know be spending half their fucking time putting mail in mail slots. You know, like but Charles Bukowski, one of the best American poets of all time, spent twenty years fucking you know shoving mail in a mail slot, and it was only when this one guy realized how important he was, who offered him a chance to quit that to work full time, that they really take off. Hmm. It took it took risk. But you see, the the beauty about today is that you don't need one person believing in you. True. At, you, you don't need, need a thousand one. people giving you a fucking dollar. You don't need some super patron, right? Exactly. To, to do you it. need just a. You just need a ton of people to give you what they would spend on in one day at McDonald's getting a fucking shit coffee. How That's um, it. how are you doing funding for Sketchy? Sketchy is going to be funded through Patreon. Now, some of you who listen to the show remember that I did an Indiegogo campaign. Now, there's a big difference between Patreon and Indiegogo. Indiegogo is one of those things where you do like a big project and then it takes you a long time. Patreon's a project where you pay per thing that a person produces. It's meant to be like short, bite-sized, exactly. little payments and, and little bite-sized pieces of art or content. I right? almost wish that Patreon would have existed back then because yeah. I would have used that instead. Because I've been anyone who listens to The Good Atheist realizes we've been using this system since 2008. So the, the internet has finally caught up to us. And, but I didn't want to do The Good Atheist stuff anymore. I thought, why don't I do a new product? And really, Sketchy Magazine is designed to attract as many people as possible. I mean, you can start at a dollar. A dollar a magazine. So how, how does it work? Like, if I want to sign up, um, I know with Indiegogo and Kickstarter, you had to choose your pledge level, and then maybe it would get funded, and you were hoping it would get funded, so you get your, your thing back. And, like, how is Patreon different as a contributor? The difference is well, there's a there's a few differences. The first one is that number one, we've the price of everything has been like with Patreon, it's it's much lower. Like even the basic Indiegogo campaign thing, we had ten bucks for the 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 basic package. That's actually the price of the most expensive package that mm. we have, ten dollars. Okay, it starts at a buck for the PDF because it's a magazine, right? Like our our thought is we're trying to get as many people to read this. And this is just fun stuff to read, comics, short stories. It's designed to be popular because the whole point is saying like, look, we can if we have a thousand or 2000, which is about a sixth of the audience listening to us right now who would give us a dollar, we'd already be halfway there. Mm -hmm. And at 2,000 people, we'd be, we'd be producing a monthly magazine. So you realize where numbers start to really change things. And we thought, you know what? Let's make things easy for people. Let's put it a dollar. It's not a dollar a month. It's a dollar a magazine. So whenever, whenever a magazine is ready to be delivered, exactly. that's when you get it that's and when that's you get when charged. you pay. Or and that's when you get charged. That's when you get charged. And in fact, you let's pretend that you say, you know what? I only want to give Jacob one dollar. You can even set a limit. Oh, in case you decide to publish a whole bunch of magazines exactly. in one month? It's a way of protecting people, or, or sometimes, because we offer at $4, you, 
you get the e-magazine, but you also get the four podcasts that we produce, which include all the stories as audio versions with cool voices and sound and, and the that kind, kind of, of production after, value. after dark one, right? What were we call that one again? Sketchy as fuck. Sketchy yeah. as fuck. Where we just basically just us fucking around and getting drunk as shit and basically having a good time. It's a varied style uh, content little thing. Well, really, no holds barred. I it's mean, a no hold barred. Thing. We're gonna fucking swear on that one. I tell oh, you. Oh yeah, but even the shows themselves, like, if, do you remember if you listened to the show, you you would have heard some of my best episodes where I I I spent so much time, you know, doing research on it and that. This is the kind of love I'm putting behind my shows. One of the shows that we're gonna be doing is gonna be on the history of free speech. We're also gonna be doing a show on marijuana prohibitionism. And we're going to be doing a show on J.D. Salinger and his writings because he's releasing new writings. And we're going to be contemplating about that, talking about his history. So we have literature. We ha we're even going to be doing a little segment because Tommy Boy here is uh, you know, a connoisseur and a lover of spirits and of science. And we, we're going to have like a section on both where we're talking about the science of spirits. I mean, how fucking Or cool just is science while... While imbibing while spirits, while bit enjoying drunk. spirits. Yeah, while a bit drunk. Spirited science. And uh, you know some musicians too, right? They're going to be stopping by Studio yep. B. And I watch an unbelievable amount of TV and movies. In fact, I'm, I'm writing scripts for these things. I, I just... I, the thing is, most of you know me for just the atheism podcast I produce. You have no idea that I have a far richer life of things that I produce and make. And now I want to introduce you to all those things. I don't want you to just see one aspect of me. I want you to see the whole thing. You've heard the tune. Now listen to the symphony. So sketchy, yeah, sketchy is, will be a fucking symphony of different uh, pr content. So that's the $4 version. And at $10, we're going to be able to produce the physical magazine. You know, one of the difficulties that I had when I was, when I was writing the book is that producing books is very difficult, but magazines are easy. And one of the great things, too, about Sketchy Magazine is that it actually promotes my other projects as well. That's how it's... Because the thing is, I get to choose what advertising I put into this motherfucker. And I thought, Sketchy for me is a place where I show my skills as a satirist. You'll notice that there's tons of funny commercials and ads and things like where I poke fun at society. And i got to get some of that uh, case of Bogsmith's gin. Or, or we, the Texas... Texas State Board, B-O-R-E-D, of Education. All of these kind of clever little elements are included. But I want it to be known as a satirist because the very first page of Sketchy is an ad for my book where I satirize the Bible. See, the thing is, I realize that people don't really read a lot of books. They read a lot of magazines, though. And so it's a good I format. Really, it's a format that's easier and funner to read, easier it's very to distribute, digestible. digestible. It's it's a better venue than what I than what I tried to make in my original. One of project. the uh, one of the segments I'm really looking forward to on the podcast is uh, this week in blasphemy. <laughs> Still has that atheist bent, Absolutely. and uh, <laughs> especially with everything going on in uh, the the area known as uh, ISIS. Sure, well, the uh, Levant. The Levant. Yeah. Uh, the segment that we're going to do called, What Century Is This? I'm really looking forward to it. It's true. It's true. you got to wonder, did they have a time machine and just set it to backwards mode? Well. They're going to party like it's 1499. You have to realize that you live in a world in which there is every single variation in human uh, history. 
is around. We still have people living as cave people. They're That's you should feel something to behold. You should feel privileged. There will probably never be another generation of human beings that have this great of variation in disparity or disparity really because by in 50 years there will be no more stone age people. But actually, you know what? We'll do a show on that one day. Let's do it. Yes, because I actually have a story entitled The Last Tribe. I don't know which of the volumes of the podcast we're going to have it, but I've already written half of this fucking story. So, again, it's like there are so many issues that I'm going to be able to talk about in a variety of ways. But instead of just telling you things in the old school, I'm going to write stories. This is, this is freedom of speech with an emphasis on freedom. This is creative freedom. This is absolute creative right? freedom. Yeah. I am unleashed. Which is uh, terrifying. terrifying. And and if you absolutely if you knew the variety of what we have planned, I mean we're gonna do history podcasts like art history or music history or um, science history or even just editorials. I mean I, I there are historical figures in which I obsess about and I'm just gonna motherfucking cover C- guess what? There is no more limits. I do what I want now. And this is a dream come true for everybody, right? You know what I mean? So here's what I want everyone to do now. If you're excited about this, I want you to stop this podcast right now because there is a segment we're going to end with. But you, I want you to stop right now. I want you to go to www.patreon.com sketchy. I think you know how to write that. So legitimate. And then I want you to just become a member. Become a member at $1 if you need to. Because I'm going to convince you to get the better ones. But just just a dollar for now. Get on this thing. Because up until we have a few subscribers, I'm only going to do one of these a year. Like at 300, it gets to two a year. Two a year. And then at 1,000, it gets every three months. So it starts first to one be... First one looks so good. And when you see that first one, you'll be like, I want this to be monthly. And that's going to be... I want two, a sketchy t-shirt, dude. To be monthly, that's going to be 2000 But imagine 2000 people giving me a dollar. Really? Actually, you the amount of people that listen. Again, that is less than a third of our audience. To be honest, I know, just in my own circles, I know way more people who believe in free speech and art than I do who believe in atheism. That's just the way it is today. It's but, just a fact. But there is one thing that I think, I, I hope you guys realize. Like one of the cool things about the Sketchy Magazine is that in the old days, they used to have a double feature cover. Do you remember that? When they didn't have a back cover? It right. was actually another cover. There was something, something cool. else going on uh, yeah. around back. So again, one of the major artists that I've been working with, him and I worked on a concept called Skeptic Al. And Skeptic Al was... Our way of kind of introducing this the ideals of skepticism through a fun comic book story it meant for kids, basically. And for me, Skeptic Al is a way to introduce what I call skeptical parables, right? Like, religious people, they love their fucking parables. Like, let's start these moral tales, but they always need to include some kind of motherfucking God. Well... I think we can do better. So I thought, why don't we make a fun story about a young man who is transported into a world where his skepticism can be used as a superpower. In a world. In a world. So the back cover of the sketchy magazine is this comic that me and uh, Jose had been working on. And 
Cold Skeptic Al, which is actually the name of our publishing company, Skeptical Publishi uh, Publication, which is Skeptic Al Publication. Get it? Yes, yeah. Ha, ha, ha. All right. But even at, th at the end of the day, like, you know, we're, we're talking about, we, we're doing art, we're doing, like, you know, just, we're talking about free speech, but I, I, I want everyone to understand that even beyond that, I still have plans to be able to, you know, get people to understand the values of being skeptic. This is how I think you get people to jump off the fucking bandwagon of religion and shit, subtly, right? We're not going to hammer people with it. And I did tests. I mean, like, I took Skeptic Al and I asked people who don't give a shit about religion, and they loved it. They loved a character who was skeptical. So I think that there's a market for this. It's just that we we have to not wrap it around atheism. We're wrapping it around skepticism. skepticism. Yeah. And you know what? I'm sorry, guys. The A word, it's still a bit dirty. But we're finding we're figuring out ways to appeal to people in a different way. And the I S hope, word. And I hope you guys understand that this, this is just a strategy for us. But we're going to make this work. We're going to spread fucking skepticism in our own way. And Sketchy Magazine Critical is just Critical thinking, a, man. Sketchy Magazine has this element, which is kind of like my ode and, you know, like my grounded roots in the secular movement. But I hope you guys see that, you know, I mean, Skeptical is what, like 5% of the entire magazine? And that's what secularism is going to be for me. It's going to be 5% of the art that I put through. So I hope that you guys who want to support this see that it's still a necessary part, but you want to see my art grow. And if you think that that's worth it, again, go to patreon.com slash sketchy and support this project. It even starts at a buck. I mean, need we say more? Now, before we wrap up, we have a fucking special surprise. We're going to be doing one of our stories from the magazine. Ooh, which one? We're going to be doing All the Best Uncle Watson. So that's going to be coming up okay. next. I hope you guys get the impression of what the 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 podcast is going to be, and it's only going to improve. I mean, we're we're still we're still getting our feel for it, aren't we, T. Bod? Well, we got a we got a whole sh set of well, shows a, mapped out. Yeah, we have a giant. We got lineup. some good segments. It's, we're not worried. We about, just laid down that jingle tonight. We're not worried about content. Let's just say that. Are we worried about content? We're being? not worried about yeah. content. We're just worried about making sure that enough people are interested in it yeah. to make it. To lift it off, really. We're, 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 we start slow, but I think that as soon as people realize its value, it's going to pick up. What do you guys think? Skepticism should be all around us. It's not right now. Critical yeah. thinking should be part of our discourse. It's not right now. Well, remember when, I, change it. remember when I mentioned the fact that the problem we have in our society is that facts don't matter. But you know what does matter? Stories. Art matters. And we're going to use that to get to people. And if you think that that it's idea... A honeypot. If you, think I'm, if you think I'm crazy, well, that's fine. But if you think I'm onto something, well, you know where to go. I think you're just plain sketchy. You're just too sketchy. All right, well, we're going to get to our story. All the best, Uncle Watson. And uh, again... Not a word since your trip to Leeds. Please send me word of your progress. I pray all is well. Your concerned nephew, Patrick. My dear nephew... It has been far too long since our last correspondence. For this I sincerely apologize. I have been busy as of late. My old colleague has me running ragged as a series of murders has occupied our time. Needless to say, this has limited my ability to reply to your kind letters. 
I must confess to a terrible thing, my dear nephew. It has been gnawing at me for some time now, and part of me feels as reluctant to tell you as though I'd been guilty of murder. You see, while the world may know the exploits of my colleague through the stories I publish, I'm afraid I've been deceitful in my renditions of them. It would be more accurate to say that I've been defrauding the public this entire time regarding the abilities of the world's most notorious detective. It was all very innocent in the beginning. When I first met him, I was enraptured. He seemed capable of making the most astute observations with very little information. He was also a wonderful host and an even better storyteller, and I would take him at his word. Many of my writings relied almost entirely on him describing the details of adventures he had experienced without me. In retrospect, I should have exercised more scrutiny. There is little doubt the man can weave an extraordinary tale. He certainly convinced my naive younger self that his supposed exploits were true. I should have known. How could anyone accomplish such amazing feats, if not for the ability to believe in one's own insane fabrications? Now the situation is unbearable. I have elevated the man to an exalted status, even though his true specialty is nothing more than a clever parlor trick. To punish me for my greed, God has cursed me with having to care for this invalid. Day and night I must watch as this unbearable man slowly poisons himself with cocaine. He's practically an invalid by now. If only Police Commissioner Lestat could see him as he soils the bed following a particular hard night of consumption. Maybe then he'd feel retribution for all the times the great detective has humiliated him. Every skill I've attributed to him has been either a complete fabrication or a generous exaggeration. In my very first story, you may recall me describing him as a master of disguise when he wore a priest's garment to infiltrate the home of Miss Adler to recover a stolen painting. In reality, it was not difficult for her to spot his little plan, since the cocaine vapors he is so fond of had made him unusually jubilant and silly. Only a lucky punch to the face from a thug allowed his plan to work, and again only partially. The painting was never recovered, as the sober mind of Miss Adler had seen through the deception. If you were to believe his version of the tale, would have sworn his foe a genius to see through it. Perhaps you think I'm being unfair. It's true that in many ways my colleague has pioneered some of the new methods currently being used by Scotland Yard, such as the use of fingerprints to identify criminals. This I greatly credit him for, but he continually criticizes my writings, no matter how generous I am of his talents, and insists I have done a poor job of explaining his science of deductive reasoning. The problem is the man has absolutely no idea what deductive reasoning actually is. A little clarification first. You may not be trained in the sciences, so allow me to explain some of the basics of reasoning. Deductive reasoning occurs when a congruence of premises are built up to support a conclusion. This can take the following form. A. All women are mortal. B. Margaret is a woman. C. Therefore, Margaret is mortal. Inductive reasoning, on the other hand, which is what my friend confuses with the former, takes a top-down approach to a conclusion, often based on limited or incomplete information. This type of thinking is useful for making hypotheses, but not in establishing the truth of a proposition. While some of the premises may be true, it does not follow that the conclusion is therefore true. For example, A, all murderers in jail are male. B, therefore, only males and murderers. While the last statement could be true, it's highly doubtful. Our information is incomplete. 
and so drawing any conclusions from it is premature. That's not to suggest that inductive reasoning doesn't have its uses. Many exciting scientific models have used this form of reasoning, in fact. But when trying to investigate a crime where many different facts can be substituted and provide a satisfying explanation, inductive reasoning becomes an investigative liability. For starters, it makes broad generalizations, often with very little evidence. It is nothing but a form of guesswork, disguised with observation to give it a sense of credibility. Worse still, this form of reasoning can often make a person lose perspective on the facts and lead to biased observations that serve only to prove the original premise. My colleague spends most of his time either coming up with elaborate theories or running all over town trying to find evidence to support them. All of this seemed marvelously clever to me until one day I realized that any number of alternative explanations would have sufficed. The irony here is that if any person fails to make the same broad generalization he does, they're quickly labeled as seeing but not observing. I believe this is but one of the many methods he employs in manipulating people by making them feel inferior. This preserves the illusion that he knows something the rest of us do not. This is not unlike the technique religious gurus use to subdue their followers. Over the years I've learned that true detective work is meticulous and boring. Most of one's time is spent gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses, two activities he detests or shows outright contempt for. But without this vital part of policing, all we are left with are wild guesses. You must wonder why I've put up with him for all these years. My wife continually asks me the same question. It's true that some of our adventures have been quite thrilling and a break from my regular routine, but this is not the reason. His methods may be terrible, and there are often serious breaches of ethics involved in his style of detective work. With all fairness to him, I have never met a man so thoroughly capable of sniffing out the bad guy. I suppose it's because he himself has the same mischievous mind, and the only thing that prevents him from turning into a villain is the thrill of catching criminals in the act. How else can you explain the fact that he always seems to know who is guilty? When all the evidence and police work fail, he is still able to find the mastermind simply by looking for him. It is as though an invisible force guides him towards the culprit. Still, I cannot fathom if this is the work of a higher power or the machinations of a mad devil. Only time will tell. All the best, Uncle Watson.